0: Hello. So I just want to tell you how excited I am about how God lines things up. Like BJ picks a song or two that go right along with what I'm speaking about, and then the Lord speaks to Carol something that goes right along with what I'm speaking about. We don't get together and orchestrate that, we're too busy. Like, we we can't do that. So it just is so encouraging to me when that just happens spontaneously, because I know he's moving, and us new pastors need all the encouragement we can get. So that is just so cool, and I'm just really excited about that this morning. So now I bet you really wonder what I'm going to be talking about, and I should get the clicker. So just to give you a little synopsis, I'm going to be talking today about being against the odds. The odds about being the people of God when you're against the odds, and about God himself and his purposes being against the odds. And when the odds are against him, God always prevails. He prospers his people in the face of the impossible, and we experience the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus. And even in that, we emerge as more than conquerors. And as the people of God, we should not despise small beginnings, and we should not shrink from what appears to be impossible. Because we are the people of God. So as I was thinking about what to talk about, I've been reading through Acts. And I was reading Stephen's speech here in Acts 7. And as I read it, it just totally came alive to me. And the part that stood out most to me was this little portion here about Moses And this whole speech has several reminders in it of how unstoppable God is. It's just a fantastic speech, and there's lots of them in Acts. If you read through them, the extended speeches that are almost like these retelling of God's faithfulness and all these stories that we know about. So God's purposes, they've never been derailed. And we can expect him to finish everything that he started. And that's what Stephen's talking about. He retells the stories of the patriarchs and Moses as he stands before the Jewish council, actively participating with God by proclaiming the truth even unto death. I think that's so uh, cool about the Bible. There's multi-level things happening here. Stephen's telling about the acts of faith of the Old Testament saints, and he's participating in the story as it's unfolding in the moment. And we still do that today too. So I want to focus mainly in on this story about Moses. We're going to kind of go back through it, and I'm going to talk about how God prevailed through that. So here in Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. So this Um, set of verses comes after the story of Moses's upbringing, but it brings context to what God was doing. God foresaw that the nation was going to need a deliverer. He foresaw that they were going to be in slavery and um, that they were going to need rescue. So this is what it says. During those main days, the king of Egypt died. Many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew. He saw them, and he was concerned for them. This didn't catch him by surprise. He knew that he was going to be raising somebody up, and he was already in the midst of doing it when this cry arose to him. He's not surprised by any of this. As I thought about that, I just thought about the awesomeness of God and about this Psalm 141, verses 1-4. through I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He sees it all. He looked on them, he was concerned, and he had a plan for their rescue. So we'll just get right into the story of what happened. So... The people of Israel are in Egypt, and they're becoming more and more numerous. They're multiplying, they're spreading abroad, and this is becoming a real problem for Pharaoh, because he thinks if these people ally with our enemies and take up weapons against us, they might be successful. So he starts to craft a plan for how he's going to deal with these people and how they're multiplying, because they're blessed. <laughs> so his first strategy is um, he's going to subject them to harsh labor, that's the first thing he's going to do, is he's just going to put them right into slavery. So is God deterred by this? His plan is not derailed. And actually, he told Abraham that this was going to happen back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13, about the slavery of his descendants. So God already knows this. And what Pharaoh doesn't know is that he is going against the promises of God. He is standing in challenge against God who told Abraham that he was going to make his descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, starting here with his physical descendants and moving on to his spiritual family, which we're a part of. Pharaoh is going up against God. As we read this story, we can see that, and just the anticipation of what is going to happen here just builds, and I love that. So what happens when he subjects them to this harsh labor? They continue to multiply, because they're blessed, because... He can't defeat god the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread abroad so step two of pharaoh's plan to destroy these people he tells the midwives to kill all the male hebrew babies at birth he says as soon as their baby is born if it's a male kill it right there if it's a female you can let it live and i found that interesting this is a little side note Interestingly, he doesn't see the female babies as threats because he doesn't think they're going to take up arms against him and go to war against him. But it's the faithful women of Israel and some other women that totally sabotage his whole plan here with the babies. The midwives fear God more than they fear Pharaoh and they let the babies live. And this whole time he didn't think that, you know, the females were a threat, it's only the males. And I just love that story, that little bit in here about the midwives, because that's such an encouragement to never diminish the obedience of one person who just says, I'm going to fear God, come what may. That is a big deal, just that one act of obedience. So what happens? The midwives don't do it. They fear God more than they fear Pharaoh, and um, they let the babies live. And so they continue to multiply, the male babies are spared, and the Hebrew people get stronger and stronger. So the next thing Pharaoh does in his plan is he commands all the people. He just says, all of you people, these male Hebrew babies, throw them into the Nile. That's what we're going to do with them. That's how we're going to deal with these people. There's no more craftiness. There's no more strategy done in the darkness. It's just outright, we're going to kill all these babies, throw them into the Nile River. So we know what happens with Moses, right? His mother hides him for three months after he's born and then puts him in the basket in the river. So let's just take a moment to assess where we're at in this story in terms of probability of success here. So we've got the future deliverer of Israel as a baby in a basket in the Nile River. Is this a good situation by the world standards? No, it's, it's bad. <laughs> so if exposure doesn't get this baby, this baby will probably drown. If this baby doesn't drown, it is certainly not going to escape all these crocodiles that live in the Nile River. It's like Moses doesn't stand a chance here. But not only does God deliver him from all of that peril against all odds, but he is nursed by his own mother and he's raised and educated in the house of Pharaoh, the very one who set out to kill all of these Hebrew babies and the one that is the deliverer of the nation he is trying to subdue escapes and is raised and educated in his own house. When I was reading this story and it was just like coming alive to me, I just felt like this. I was just like, wow that that is so god and it just makes me think of him up there doing this and he's just like what are you how are you going to come against me it's just incredible it reminded me of <clears throat> psalm 2 it says that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain and the lord what does he do he laughs at them he laughs at them <laughs> And Peter quotes this psalm in Acts 4. There's this interesting connection between all these things and also what's happening in Acts. Peter quotes Psalm 2 in Acts 4. And this is after he is before the Sanhedrin, and they tell him and they tell John to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Stop doing these things. We want you to be silent on this matter. That's what they tell Peter and John, and then they release them. And they go back to the other believers And this is the plot of the Sanhedrin, to come against the purposes of God. But Peter gets it. He sees it. He sees this is the same story over and over and over again as human beings coming against what God is going to do, trying to shut it down. Peter recognizes it. And he chooses that he's going to fear God. And he knows that God is going to prevail. He chooses God over the fear of man. And just like the midwives, he's faithful. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They chose to go with God, because he is going to prevail, even when the odds are against him. Even when it looks bad, they they surrendered everything to God. And we know the results of that, right? So God is still working today. I mean, is that surprising to you? You all know that. You all know that he's still working today. And we are meant to see ourselves in these stories that we read. We're meant to see ourselves. You are meant to see yourself in that story. You know how you feel when we have like a testimony Sunday or, you know, maybe you're watching testimonies or something on YouTube and you hear the story from a brother or sister that just like really lands for you. And it just is like, wow, God is so faithful. Look at what he does in the lives of his people. Look at what he's capable of. Nothing is impossible for him. The Bible is God's testimony to us. This is his testimony to us. It's easy to become familiar and to disregard it, but these stories are not just meant to be turned into picture books for children. (laughs) They're meant to equip us. They're meant to equip you because you are not some inconsequential animal. (laughs) That's not what you are. You're not here today, gone tomorrow. You're part of the kingdom if indeed you believe and God's faithfulness and his ultimate prevail should encourage you to be bold today. You should see yourself in these stories because you are a part of the continuing story, just like Stephen was when he was retelling the stories before the council. That's for us, too. And thinking about that, Hebrews, you guys remember Hebrews chapter 11, where it goes through all the stories of faithfulness of the Old Testament saints. And Hebrews 12 starts by telling us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So this means witnesses not so much in the sense that they are actually physically watching us with their eyes, but more in the sense that their stories of faith and boldness should be constant reminders that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Those stories, those testimonies stand as a witness before us if we will read them of what God is capable of when people will obey him and trust him and surrender to him. That is the great cloud of witness that we are surrounded by. Those testimonies of how God prevailed, they ought to make us bold. So just another example. We talked a little bit about Moses. and I got to thinking about Paul because he's connected to this story in Acts as well. This is where we meet him. And at this point, his name is Saul. So going back to Stephen's speech, we're introduced to Paul, or Saul, at this point. And Stephen's accusers lay their garments at Paul's feet so that they can more easily hurl stones, the stones that are going to kill Stephen. You know, they need range of motion so they can throw these stones at this this guy. So they lay their outer garments at the feet of Saul. And he approves of this. He stands in approval of what they're doing. So I just wanted to read you some descriptions from Scripture of the man God chose to use as an extremely effective instrument to accomplish his purposes. And I'll just let you decide for yourself how likely a candidate Paul was to be who he turned out to be. (laughs) So some of the things he did. He breathed murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He did evil to the saints in Jerusalem. He made havoc for those that believe in Jesus. He persecuted the followers of Jesus even to death. He imprisoned and beat those who believed, and he tried to get them to blaspheme. In a raging fury, he pursued those believers, even to foreign cities. That was a lot of work back then. It wasn't like he could get in a car and go down to Grand Rapids and persecute people. It's like he really had to like work at this. It was a big deal to him. And um, he even says this about himself. In 1 Timothy, Paul calls himself the foremost sinner. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He's like, There's no, it doesn't get much worse than what I was, you know, before I was saved. And he's like, look at me. I'm an example of what God can do, of his patience, of his faithfulness, of it, it's just incredible what he brought Paul out of and how he used him. And so that right there is against the odds. But God tells Ananias that Paul is his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles, their kings, and Israel. That's just incredible. This guy is my chosen instrument to do these things. And being used as this instrument, it didn't elevate Paul to some position that indulged his pride. Maybe we could see how it could work if this was somehow feeding that part of Paul that's just this nasty human being. We could see how that might work out if it felt good to him. (laughs) But that's not the case here. Again, it's against the odds. Right after he tells, right after God tells Ananias that Paul is his chosen instrument, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So it's not like Paul gets to just like live the big life for somebody that he hates it's like he's totally converted. He falls so deeply in love with this God, with Jesus, and now he's going to suffer for his name. Like, that's just incredible. Because he did suffer. He, he really did. At least according to the standards of the world, Paul certainly suffered. But Paul considered all. He gave up rubbish. <laughs> in comparison to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ, it didn't Matter to him. None of it mattered because he knew the truth. And it was never going to be the same for him. He was never going to be able to go back. None of that meant anything to him anymore. He gave it all up. He surrendered his entire life to God. No holds barred. He just gave it all up. And now we get to read scripture because of that. And that's incredible. So there's an interesting set of things that happen when people say yes to God and find that his grace is sufficient oh it just changes us it changes us and we find out how good that tastes and we want more we want more we want to press into god more and we're like okay i trust you you're doing incredible things i want to see what else you can do so i'm just going to surrender myself to you and we end up desiring the things above rather than the things below Right after Paul talks about all things being rubbish in comparison to the excellence of knowing Christ, he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What does he mean by that? So he wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. Well, don't we all? I mean, we can understand that. We want to know the power of the resurrection. We can't wait till that glorious day. I mean, we're all in anticipation of that. But he also wants to know the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Well, that's something different. What does that look like? What's the fellowship of his suffering? What was Christ's suffering? It means that we take up our cross daily. We take up our cross and we follow him and we forsake ourselves. We obey even unto death because of love not because of compulsion or legalism but out of love because he loved us and now we love him and so we follow him and obey even unto death and when we're rejected when we're reviled or when we're persecuted we endure patiently (laughs) that's what we do that's what it's like to participate in the sufferings of jesus and that's what paul wanted because it does something different there's something there And then he wanted to be like him in his death. What does that mean? To be like Jesus in his death. It means that we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. It means we're crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us. I love the way this um, one particular author, G.K. Chesterton. He's an old author from like 1900, British guy. But the way he put this, this is a paraphrase of it. He said, Do you love the world enough to die for it while hating it enough to die to it? And uh, wow, that's such a powerful illustration. I mean, Jesus came and he loved so, so much that he died to himself. He forsook himself. Just his act of coming here was because he loved so much. But he was also totally sinless. He was totally dead to the world and all the things it had to offer. He loved it so much that he died for it and he hated it so much that he died to it. And that's incredible. So, last thing I want to talk about. This, is a, this was so interesting to me. And this is a great insight. Most of this is a great insight from Derek Prince, who I love listening to and who I always learn something from every time I listen. But what does it actually mean to prosper? What, what does that really look like for us as believers in the kingdom? What does it mean to prosper? How do we live a prosperous life? In Romans 1, Paul prays for a prosperous journey by the will of God to Rome. He prays that. He says, I pray that I will come to you and I will have success, a prosperous journey to Rome. He wants to go there. So the word prosper in Romans 1, is the same Greek word that is used in 3 John verse 2, when John's greeting says, I pray that you prosper in all things. So John's greeting someone and using the same word prosper, so it's not some trick. It's not like prosper means something terrible, actually. It's something that we should desire. So let's look more at what this means. Was Paul's journey to Rome prosperous? I mean... Was it prosperous by the world's standards? Well, we can read about it in Acts 27. And this is what happened. As he sailed for Rome, he traveled as a prisoner. He was caught in a storm of unparalleled proportions that was just insane. They were throwing everything overboard just to try to survive. He went without food. Uh, He ran aground in the ship, eventually. The ship just ran aground, and they had to get to shore on pieces of the ship, or swim if they could. He was almost executed, because he was a prisoner, and people were concerned about the prisoners escaping, so he just barely escaped that by the favor of God. And uh, then, when he gets to the island, he's bitten by a snake. When he's trying to put wood on the fire, he's bitten by this snake. Is that a prosperous journey? (laughs) Is that like a big car and a super cool house and all the stuff? It is not. But still, this is Paul's prosperous journey. This is so important. And if you don't remember anything else, just this one thing is so important. The implication is that true prosperity is not dependent on circumstances. To prosper means that the will of God is accomplished, even in intense opposition. That is what it means for us, the people of God, to prosper. That the will of God is accomplished, even in intense opposition. And to be a participant in that is satisfaction for our souls. It is what we need. It is what we are here for. It's what fills all of that void that people are always looking to fill. It's just, that's it. That's what it's it's all about. I guess I didn't put that on a slide. So Paul's conversion and his being used as an instrument and his faith in trials resulted in what we read in the closing two verses of Acts. Paul stayed there two full years in his own rented house, welcoming all who came to visit him. Boldly and freely he claimed the kingdom of God, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. God prevailed. Through Paul, I don't think Paul was the kind of person that went to his death with a bunch of regrets. I, it, it's just incredible to me what he did with his life as an offering to God. God's will prevailed, and he, Paul, emerged as more than a conqueror through Jesus, knowing that nothing could separate him from the love of God. And he encourages us by his example to do the same thing today. And I know it's challenging, but I also know that God's incredible. And he did it through Paul, the foremost of sinners. He did it. He delivered Moses. Nothing's impossible with him, right? (laughs) All right, let's pray. Lord, I just want to say that we believe you. Mm -hmm. We believe you, Lord, that nothing is impossible for you. And Lord, we trust you. You're a father, and you're a good father. You love us. You love us so much. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust you, and we can offer our lives up to you without fear, full of love, full of trust. And so we do that, Lord. I ask that you would work through each one of us to do whatever it is that you will, Lord, that you would reveal your will to us, Lord, that we could be active participants in you with what you are doing in the world today. I pray that you would just perfect each one of us, that you would perfect our church, and that you would work through it and through all of us, Lord. You are so good, and we thank you for all that you're accomplishing, Lord, all that you've done and all that you are going to do, Lord. And we just say that we are in for that, Lord. And we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.